0: I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. I hope you've been enjoying the author interviews I've aired over the last few weeks. I've had those interviews saved up since the middle of last year, but I waited to release them until I'd finished my production of the Urban Legends story collection. I'll probably have some more interviews for you in the coming months, but for now, it's time to get back to the fiction. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I am proud to bring you the first installment in my new Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. This is a direct sequel to Things Unseen, so if you haven't listened to that story, you should go back and get caught up before continuing on to this week's episode. Things Unseen is available in audiobook form from Audible.com, and you can also hear it in episodes 24 to 79 of this podcast. And now, without further ado, here is The Lost and the Least. Metamore Studios and Liminal Corvid Press proudly present The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester, Dedication for Cesar, Claudia, Christian, Jessica, Jose, Brandon, Jackie, Zendi, Anna Karen, Carly, and Jorge. Together we rise. Open your mouth for those who have no voice, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. King Lemuel of Massa For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly I say to you, Whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Yashua Anequian Prologue Saturday, September 17th Year 1999, Christos Reckoning Giant Downs Province Imperial Union of Metamore And allied nations. The cold autumn wind blew over the compound with gale force. It stripped the yellow leaves from the scattered trees and sent them tumbling away over the steps. Captain Yanlin Chatterley pulled up the hood of her parka and cinched it tight, turning her back to the wind. Another gust hit her straight on, and she thought it would push her over. It was not yet the equinox, and already winter was coming on fast. She stood atop the main bunker and looked out over the base. The concrete buildings were all built low to the ground, half-sunken in the earth, with angled sides to deflect the wind. Beyond them stood the walls, six-meter-high barricades of concrete and corrugated steel, with ten-meter watchtowers topped with machine-gun nests. In the six years since she'd been posted here, Yanlin couldn't remember the towers ever being manned. Before today... She'd never imagined why they might be needed. It wasn't as if anyone had ever tried to break in. Apart from the compound's 34 personnel, she rarely saw anything moving out here. A rabbit, perhaps, or a wandering hawk. No people, except for their monthly supply convoys. And certainly nothing like the Imperial Air Force transport shuttle that was now approaching from the southwest. It was not a large craft— only a bit more than 20 meters from nose to tail, but its oversized man-engines were clearly made to haul ass when the need arose. The shuttle's fuselage was broad, flattened, and roughly triangular in shape, blending smoothly into the swept wings. The blue, white, and gold paint job marked it as a VIP transport for the civilian government, the kind used to carry diplomats and cabinet-level officials. Yenlin had seen one in person before, on a landing platform at Mathias Skyport, but never anywhere near here. A kilometer out from the base, the roar of the shuttle's MANA engines cut out, replaced by the low, heavy drone of lift turbines. The shuttle came to a hover over the exercise yard, then slowly descended, kicking up more fallen leaves and dust around the compound. Yanlin descended the bunker's external stairs and strode across the yard to meet her visitor. She was already standing at attention when he emerged, descending a set of stairs that had unfolded itself from the underside of the fuselage. The man was a theriomorph, given the features of a raccoon by the curse of metamorph. Though he was not much taller than Yanlin herself, his broad shoulders and proud bearing gave him an imposing look nonetheless. He wore a heavy brown leather coat lined with wool, but he still snarled in displeasure as another gust of arctic wind blew across the grounds. Fucking Northlands, he growled. The raccoon man's glossy black eyes locked on Yanlin. She saluted him smartly. Lord Richter? Lord Richter returned the salute, formally but briefly, then started walking toward the bunker. With me, Captain Chatterley. She fell into step at his heel, saying nothing. It was unwise to attempt small talk with the Minister of Defense. He did not say anything further until they were indoors and out of the wind. When did it happen? he asked. The alarm sounded at O four forty seven hours this morning, Yanlin said. Medical staff were deployed and arrived at the secure ward by O four fifty eight. Dr. Fleischman evaluated all sensor readings and made the call to crack the sarcophagus at 0513. They came to a security checkpoint with a heavy steel door and a biometric scanner. The door was currently lying on the floor of the hallway, about two meters out from the checkpoint, where it had landed after being torn off its hinges. A roughly spherical dent about a meter wide marked what had once been the inner surface of the door. Lord Richter snorted in amused disgust as he walked past, continuing on into the secure ward. The interior of the ward resembled an operating theater. Bare white floors stretched across an octagonal area seven meters wide. The walls were lined with medical monitors and other, more obscure equipment, both technological and magical in design. Dr. Fleischman and two of his nurses stood off to one side, still looking stunned a mephitic stench hung heavy in the air, even with the HVAC system working at full strength for the last two and a half hours. Lord Richter examined the sarcophagus in the exact center of the room. It resembled a large metal coffin, mounted at a 45-degree angle to the floor and embedded with medical instruments. The lid opened to the right on a pair of industrial-strength hinges, revealing a padded interior lined with what looked like leather or vinyl. It probably would be a fairly comfortable spot for a nap, if you weren't claustrophobic. A window of tempered glass was mounted in the lid, and hoses connected through the floor mount provided ventilation, but there wouldn't be much room to move around in there. Not that Yanlin imagined the chamber's occupant had been doing much tossing and turning. The defense minister reached into the sarcophagus, pulling out a tangle of sensor leads, Tufts of black fur clung to the edges of the adhesive. Did he say anything when he woke up? I'm not certain. Yanlin raised her eyebrows at Dr. Fleischman. Doctor? The doctor shifted uncomfortably. He was... he was ranting like a madman, he said, looking away from Lord Richter's piercing gaze. Something about darkness and fire and blood. It didn't make any sense. The raccoon man grunted. <laughs> he usually doesn't. Coming out of the sleep like this, his brain doesn't wake up all at once. He gestured with his chin at the blasted outdoor. He hasn't done anything like that in a few centuries, though. What triggered him? Um. Dr. Fleischman looked down at his feet. I gave the order to inject him with diazepam. Lord Richter barked a laugh. He's been asleep for twenty-seven years, Doc. Did you really think you could sedate him and he'd let you get away with it? Dr. Fleischman grimaced. With all due respect, sir, I wasn't exactly briefed on what to expect. I know, Richter said, waving a hand. We weren't expecting him to wake up again this soon. Our oversight, I'm afraid. He turned his attention back to Yanlin. Was anyone hurt? Nothing serious, sir, she said. He sprayed two of the guards in the face. They've been treated for minor chemical burns around the eyes, as well as the, um... Richter chuckled. <laughs> Tell them to use peroxide and baking soda mixed with dishwashing liquid. That'll get the stink out, if they're lucky. Yes, sir. Yanlin looked back down the hall to the front door. The door sensor log shows he left the facility at 0521. I sent out search parties in all directions for a 20-click radius, but they didn't find anything. They wouldn't, Richter said. He's a grandmaster illusionist, Captain, and he's trained in earth magic and shamanic magic besides. He'd have better luck chasing a ghost. But of course, nobody thought to tell us that before we wasted all that time and fuel. Yanlin bit down her annoyance. She couldn't really pretend to be surprised at the secrecy. After all, this entire facility officially didn't exist. What do you want us to do now, sir? Lord Richter scratched at his chin. Download all of his medical readouts to a data stick. Security footage from the escape, too, if you have it. Maybe he said something that'll make more sense to me or the Majestrix. Yanlin nodded. Yes, sir. Dr. Fleischman? On it. The doctor went over to one of the monitor systems, plugged in a data stick, and started the download. Meanwhile, Lord Richter pulled out a satellite phone from his coat pocket and keyed in a number. Whoever he was calling picked up within a few seconds. Hello, a woman's voice said. It's me, he said. He's out. Yanlin faintly heard a sigh through the phone's speaker. Gods, I was afraid of that. The sleep keeps getting shorter. What woke him this time? Richter frowned and looked down at the sarcophagus. No idea, he said. But if history's any indication, he's headed for Metamore." and chaos is riding in with him. Chapter 1 Wednesday, May 16th Year 2000, Christos Reckoning Metamore City Capital, Imperial Union of Metamore and Allied Nations The body was stiff and cold, but the scavengers had barely begun to nibble on the carcass. Michael kicked a stone at a rat that was taking an interest in the fingers. The rock bounced off the concrete wall behind it, and the creature took off, chittering angrily. Damned uniforms, he muttered. He wiped the sweat from his brow with a shirt sleeve and glared back at the two patrol officers, slouched in their skimmer at the end of the alley. They'd thrown up a strip of yellow police tape when they arrived an hour ago, far enough back to keep any nosy bystanders from getting a look at the body, and subsequently ignored it. Now they were back in the cruiser with the air conditioning cranked to maximum. Michael's companion, a scrawny young man in an Empire University t-shirt and denim shorts, shot a furtive glance over his shoulder. He flipped the pages on his little black notebook, a nervous tick Michael had spotted within thirty seconds of meeting the guy. Why? What's wrong? Michael gestured at the body in disgust. What's wrong is that I've got rats chewing on my Vic. They're supposed to secure the crime scene, prevent destruction of evidence. That means not letting anybody cross the barrier until we get here. He kicked another stone in the direction the rat had gone. Or anything. The college student pulled out a pen and made some notes in his book. Does this happen a lot? People neglecting the crime scene? Michael clenched his jaw. Cops weren't supposed to badmouth other cops in front of outsiders. Spreading stories to reporters, or, gods forbid, elected officials, about the internal problems of the department was breaking a code of silence that was close to sacred. But Will wasn't a reporter or a politician. He was just an aspiring novelist with a lot of questions. To Michael's mind, the world of fiction could use a little more realism where cops were concerned. After all... If people didn't know there were problems, there would be no pressure to change. It depends on where the murder happens, Michael told Will. If a crime scene is on the upper skyways, they lock it down tight, and the chain of custody is carefully guarded. For somebody like this? He waved a hand around, encompassing the filthy floor of the alley, the tag-covered walls, the dimly lit belly of the skyway overhead. There's a lot of cops who just don't give a damn. Will looked appropriately scandalized. That's horrible. Access to justice isn't supposed to depend on how much money you make. No, it isn't, Michael said quietly. Junior, what are you doing? Michael grimaced as Detective Horace Bentley climbed out of his skimmer and lumbered toward the crime scene. Bentley had a body built for lumbering. He was a theriomorph. "'shaped by the ancient curse of Metamore "'into the form of a humanoid rhinoceros. "'He wore an ill-fitting gray suit "'like he couldn't even feel the oppressive heat, "'and his heavy hooves stomped barefoot over the pavement, "'oblivious to the trash beneath them. "'Detective Bentley,' Michael said, "'nodding to his senior partner. "'Glad you could make it. "'This is Will Carrington, the ride-along I told you about.' "'Will bowed politely. "'Hello, sir.' "'Bentley chuckled.' His own bow was barely more than a nod of his massive head. God's kid, don't call me sir. I work for a living. He turned back to Michael. Don't let him puke all over the crime scene, huh? Wouldn't dream of it, Michael said dryly. Bentley sauntered over to the patrol car, where he knocked on the window and struck up a conversation with the uniforms. The old detective seemed to know everybody on the force, and he showed far more interest in catching up with two old buddies than in the victim. Stand by the wall over there, Michael said to Will. I'm going to take a closer look at the body. Will's eyes flickered over to the corpse, then back at Michael. He swallowed visibly. Got it. Before he did anything else, Michael took out his phone and opened the camera app. He snapped photographs of the entire scene, starting from just inside the police tape and slowly, carefully working his way inward. As he approached the body, Michael's automatic defense systems kicked in. The wave of empathy he felt for the man was pushed to the back of his mind and locked down tight. His feelings weren't helpful or relevant to the situation. He suppressed his gag reflex in the same way. Though the body reeked, he'd smelled far worse. Shortly after arriving in Metamore, he'd made the mistake of offering suggestions to Lieutenant Richards on how to manage the homicide caseload. His presumption had earned him a week of sewer sweeps, and even in the frigid November weather he had found himself vomiting three or four times a day. After that week, he'd been inured to anything he might smell at a more typical crime scene. It came in useful now, as the oppressive heat of late spring accelerated decay. Will seemed to be having a lot more trouble with it. He covered his mouth with the perfumed handkerchief Michael had given him for the purpose. What do you see? Will asked. The Vic was a transient, Michael said, homeless. He pointed at the filthy and threadbare clothes, scrounged his stuff from garbage bins and charity piles. Will wrote something on his pad. How do you know he was homeless and not just poor? The shoes, Michael said, crouching down beside the man's feet. See all the bits of broken glass ground into the soles? You get that from walking through cast-off drug vials. Man's shoes look like that and you know he's been walking the street. Why would anyone do that? Will asked. There are monsters down here. Actual monsters. Why not go to a shelter? Probably did. But shelters have rules. Michael pulled on a pair of gloves and pulled back the man's shirt sleeves. And this poor guy couldn't follow them. He showed Will the arms laced with track marks. Will looked heartbroken. Drugs? What kind? Rain or heroin, probably. Michael said. He took close-up photos of the shoes and the needle scars. Then he stepped back and started searching the ground for the syringe, the attic's last hit. He frowned. He crouched low to the ground, Crab walked slowly around the body, and frowned some more. He widened his circle in a spiral, carefully checking his footing so as not to disturb any of the evidence. But the evidence wasn't there. "'Detective Bentley?' Michael called. All right, kid, I'm coming. Bentley strolled over to the body with no visible sense of urgency. What you got, Junior? Looks like an OD, but the works are missing. Michael gestured at the bare floor of the alley. And it's too exposed. He should be holed up somewhere. Good eye, Bentley said, nodding once. So what you need me for? Can you tell how long it's been since his last fix? Michael gestured at his nose. Like the rhino he resembled, Bentley had a keen sense of smell. Bentley stooped down, took one experimental sniff, and grimaced. Kid, all I smell in this skag is shit, piss, and B.O. That stuff is what M.E.s are for. Michael rose and nodded. All right, guess we'll wait for the blood work to come back. Bentley peered closer, then chuckled once. (laughs) Good luck with that. He grabbed the Vic's head and twisted it up into the side, exposing two neat puncture wounds over the carotid artery. The surrounding flesh on the man's neck looked ashen pale. Juice bag, he pronounced. He dropped the man's head and rose, wiping his hands on his pants. He turned and started plodding back toward the cruiser, heedless of disturbing the scene. Bag him and tag him. Wait, what? Will followed after Bentley. Michael shook his head and hung back. He knew how this conversation would go. He'd had it himself early in his time on the force. Bentley turned around and looked down his enormous, horned muzzle at Will. Something you need, Scribbler? I came here to see a crime scene investigation, Will said. You just saw it. Will bristled. Are you serious? Where's the CSI team? Bentley turned and fixed him with a weary, exasperated look. Kid, do you have any idea how much it costs the department when we call in CSI? That shit gets charged to our operating budget. The idea that money might have anything to do with police work seemed even more offensive to Will than simple callousness. Then don't you think you should look at the scene for more than ten seconds? You're only going to get one shot at this. How much fucking evidence do you think we need to prove the obvious, kid? Bentley said, raising his voice. He's a junkie juice bag. We called the libs, tell them they got a feral vamp down here, case closed. Michael came up beside Will. He's got a point, Bentley. We don't know the vamp is feral. This could be one of Malcolm's people feeding a murder habit on the side. Again, not my problem, Bentley said. You know how this works, Junior. Vamps are lightbringer turf, period. Let them figure it out. But we're the ones on the crime scene, Michael countered. If we can find some evidence that would narrow it down. Kid, Bentley thumped a hand down on Michael's shoulder. Let's take a walk. He eyed Will. Just the two of us. Will took an involuntary step back. He started flipping the pages of the notebook again. Bentley steered Michael to a discreet distance. Look, he said softly, when they were out of earshot. I know you're eager to make your bones in this precinct, but let it go. Nobody gives a shit about a dead junkie. Michael nodded back over his shoulder. Will does. Bentley snorted. (laughs) Please, I've seen a thousand kids like him. They show up for a protest, they chant, they put a bumper sticker on their laptop, and then they go home to their nice, clean beds and their 24-hour campus security and in a month they forget all about it. You think that one's known a day of real hardship in his whole fucking life? Michael looked over at Will, took in the guy's trendy wristwatch, the little leather-bound notebook, the nearly new Skyball shoes. I doubt it, he admitted. So let it go. We kick this one to the libs, close the case, move on to the next one. Clearance rates, kid. That's what gets you job security. Not pulling flashy evidence out of one crime scene and making the papers. else you pull that kind of shit, you're going to make nothing but enemies. Homicide is all about the numbers. Michael lowered his eyes, looked back over his shoulder at the body in the alley. I hear you. I do. But this crap, it isn't fair to the Vic. Oh, a vampire ate him. That's it? That's all? He shook his head. deserves better than that. He wanted better than that. He shouldn't have become a junkie in the first place. Bentley thumped him on the back. I'm gonna get in the skimmer. It's steamier than a sucky's cooch out here. Bentley left him then, and Michael walked back to Will. Sorry about that, Michael said. Will shook his head in disbelief. How can he be so cold? Ten years in the army, close to twenty as a cop, Michael said. It's a coping strategy. He gestured at his skimmer. Let's get inside before we pass out from heat exhaustion. Will followed him obediently back to the skimmer, where a wash of cool air awaited them. Michael glanced at the clock. The meat wagon would be here before long. Cops don't all end up like that, do they? Will asked. No, Michael said quietly. Some of them get broken first. Back in the alley a rat crept back out of its hiding place, its beady eyes and a tasty-looking set of fingers. And that's where we're going to stop for this week. Come back next week for Chapter 2, as we check back in with Magic Affairs Detective Lieutenant Catherine Catane. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. Without really meaning to, I ended up taking most of the last month off from writing. This is partly because I got sick for a while, partly because Mel and I were busy with wedding prep, and partly because of a change in my work schedule. I'm getting up about 90 minutes earlier than I used to, and that means I'm going to bed about 90 minutes earlier, too. I'm still trying to figure out where I can block out the time for regular writing in this new schedule. Also, full disclosure, we got seriously hooked on Altered Carbon, the new cyberpunk series on Netflix. If you're a fan of Metamore City, and you're not squeamish about sex and violence, you should give it a try. It tackles a lot of the same philosophical issues I wrestle with in my stories, but it comes at them from a different angle. It's good stuff, and well worth your time. Looking back at the month of February, I wrote a total of 3,383 words over six days, averaging 564 words per day. That's the second lowest monthly word count since I started this podcast. I spent a total of 5.25 hours writing in February. Compared to January, my word count decreased by 56%, and my writing time decreased by 46%. Hopefully, things will start to pick back up for the month of March. Over on the Patreon feed, we gained two new patrons in February. Please welcome Christina and Leo! I added a new short story to the Patreon feed a couple weeks ago, and last week I posted Ben Clifford's latest piece of bonus art. This one is from Whispers in the Wood, and it shows the scene where Abby first encounters the Leonanche. It's dark and spooky and a little insane and it fits the feel of the story perfectly. I've put a sample up on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, but if you're a patron, you can see the whole thing. If you're not a member of my Patreon campaign yet, joining up is easy. All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card. Just go to patreon.com slash author chris lester, take a look at the reward tiers, and make a monthly pledge that works for you. Becoming a patron is the very best way to support this show, and help me keep making it. And if you're already a patron, thank you again for your generous support. And now, the feedback. Richard writes, Hi Chris, I've been enjoying your podcast for a few months now, and I'm nearly caught up to current. I almost always listen to new shows in my feed from their beginnings. When I say enjoying, I really mean it. I love Metamore City. I have one question that kind of niggled at my brain for a while now, the world is a secondary creation with some religious imagery, obviously inspired by real-world faiths. And you have mentioned the faith that uses the yew tree as its symbol, mentioning the name of that faith's major figure. And yet, when referencing dates, you most often refer to Christos reckoning, since Jesus Christ seems to have never been a part of the world of Metamore City. Is this reference for our benefit, or is it some sort of remnant of what you originally started? Thanks for the amazing work. Hi, Richard. The Christos Reckoning calendar was created by Kevin Copernicus Denehan, the creator of Metamorph Keep. He established a timeline of important events throughout the history of his fictional world, but he never explained where the name Christos came from. According to Copernicus's timeline, the year zero of the Christos Reckoning was based on a bright light that appeared in the night sky. The Sweelman Empire recorded that this light appeared over Metamore Valley and subsequent generations recorded that this was the start of the empire's collapse. Copernicus never said whether this was a magical event or some kind of natural occurrence like a supernova. Whatever it was, it was an event that had been witnessed by people over a wide swath of the world, so it was probably a convenient reference point for calibrating the new calendar system to other calendars that were already in use. It's true that the Christ figure of the Ecclesia. Joshua Nequion, was born sometime around year zero, but that seems to have been a coincidence. Joshua was born in the Holy Land, far to the south of where the light occurred, so Copernicus probably never intended that light to be the mythical star of Bethlehem. As for the name Christos, the general consensus among Metamor keep writers is that it was the name of the astronomer who invented the calendar. We don't know anything about the guy, but his name sounds Greek, so he was probably from the island nation of Wales, which is a country that is well known for its contributions to scientific knowledge. Thanks for the question, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Hey Chris, this is Stephen from South Carolina. I'm sorry to hear that you're down. It's probably a function of it being cold as heck up there. I really don't understand how you guys ever leave the house in the winter anyway. But I just wanted to let you know that um, what you do really is important. For 19 years, I've just worked a job, you know, make a check at night. And storytellers such as yourself and some others, off of Audible and podcasts, they really do add a lot to my life. And I really, really enjoy your stories, especially. So thank you very much. You really do something that's very important. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for the encouraging words, Stephen. I'm sure the winter blues are part of it, but I think another part is that I've just been grieving the end of my latest big project. It's hard to let go of something that's taken over such a big part of your life for so long, and now that the lost and the least is out in the world, it's hard to get myself back in gear to tackle something new. I appreciate the positive words from listeners like you, because it reminds me that I do have reason to get back on the horse and move on to the next project. Thanks for the call! Joseph wrote in with this comment on my interview with Christiana Ellis. Chris, several years ago I almost gave up writing because of a similar incident that Christiana had writing about a similar story. I had spent months writing a story that would wind up appearing far too similar to a popular kids movie at the time. I knew I'd never convince anyone that I never saw the movie, and my writing was completely from my own head. I felt that all original ideas were taken, and I gave up on writing for a long time. I eventually came back and started small with flash fiction, eventually getting published. Though I've been back to writing for a while, it's encouraging to know that established authors run into these problems, too. Thank you for continuing to bring us Metamore City. Thanks for sharing that, Joseph. And yeah, I think that experience is something that a lot of us can identify with. Just remember what I said in the interview, though. Ideas aren't copyrightable. What matters is your interpretation, your way of bringing that story to life. It's going to be different from anything anyone else does. And that interpretation, that voice that you bring to the story, that's really what matters. That's what makes it art. Thanks for writing in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash lester. the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press.